Welcome to the Sin of Our Fathers podcast. My name is Matthew Kuhn. I'm your host this week, joined by my older brother, Michael. Hey, guys. And we are down a brother. Mark Mark is MIA tonight, but the, the show must go on, so we're going to power through. It's the value of having three of us. We can, we can drop one and still function quite well. I don't think I've ever missed an episode, though. <laughs> yes, you have. You missed one. Me and Mark did one without you one time. Oh, and then you emailed me the file so I could edit it. Yes. <laughs> and post it. While right. you were on vacation. That's right. I, d- I did do that. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I cannot take the crown of never missing one. Um, whew. Week six. This yeah. this one was well, I, I think we got more fired up during this game and yelling at the TV than we have in a long time. I know my uh, wife got real pissed at the th- way there we were, were treated. There were numerous of our wives who who were frustrated with the the volume of things. Um, however, I I've, I felt pretty good about it. I thought it was justified. Oh no, I'm I didn't apologize in any way, shape, or form. To be clear. Um, it was it was bad. We it, it's frustrating when the Browns seem to play well enough to win a game, and factors seemingly outside of the team's control influence it. And um, some of it was bad luck, just on the way the ball bounces, and some of it was the refs. And I don't know if any one of the bad calls would have completely like decimated this team. It was the accumulation of many of them within a short period of time. Like they were all in the second half. Like I don't think there was a single atrocious or particularly bad call in the first half. They all were condensed within the third and fourth quarters. Yeah, when it when it mattered and like the the 50-50 calls the the bounce of the ball like all seemed to go against the Browns especially down the stretch um which was really frustrating so i actually got a chance to call grandpa and and talk to him about this uh we try to call grandpa every week and and get his opinion on it so i just got off the phone with him so here's that conversation hello hey grandpa it's matthew <laughs> Oh, Matthew. What are you doing? Uh, we just got two weeks now. We were just sitting there looking at a looking at a movie. What's oh. happening? Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, did the, the Browns win finally or what? <laughs> I think you know the answer to that, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm telling you. Have you ever seen a game more poorly officiated? No, I haven't. It was, it was awful. So I, I feel like that game yesterday was a combination of two things. First, Browns just couldn't catch a break from an officiating standpoint. I've about had it with this um, the illegal blindside block call. We, we get screwed by that each and every time it happens. Um, and then the Browns just couldn't get out of their own way with turning yeah, the ball over every time. It, it, it seemed like uh, the officiating was kind of Biased and against the Browns, uh, I, um, you know, when we were uh, uh, on the, uh, they, they called, they called the uh, no, no touchdown. Uh, right. Who was it? It was Jar- Jarvis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They called no touchdown. They did, and they showed it every which way but loose, and you could see that the point of the ball had crossed it, and they, and they say, say no touchdown. 
uh, I, I just don't understand. They call they call roughing the passer on on uh, on uh, Okajobis, and and uh, you know, and they really had him. They really had him in the in the in a, in a box way back yeah. there behind behind the ten yard line. They had him in a in a real real good position, and they they call that rough for the passer on him. And let him out of the damn box. Um, I, I just don't understand it. Uh, I thought I'd say one thing though, but uh, I, I I know that the, all these losses certainly aren't Mayfield's fault, but uh, a lot of the interceptions are his fault. I think he's uh, he's the only one. He's the only one that can fess up to the to the interceptions, and he throws some critical ones that have been. It's just heartbreakers, you know. And uh, I hate to say it, but he's starting to he's starting to give me uh, 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 recollections of, uh, of Vinny Festerverdi. <laughs> this guy was uh, was uh, when he was good, he was good. But Vinny would throw an interception at the crucial time and just break your heart. And I'm telling you, I I just see this and. In um, in uh, uh, Mayfield, and I, I just sort of worry a little bit. I know that, that you know that offensive line is isn't isn't the greatest thing in the world, and he's always been running for his life. But uh, you know, it it seems like you're watching two different games from the first from the first half of the first quarter to the end of the game. Wonder if it was the same game. I I think that. Uh, uh, they they, they got to get the get the rank together. They, the, the penalties, uh, well, they obviously they're causing a few of them. I think some of them are miscalled, and uh, it, it, you know I, I just don't understand that why why they they, they can do that. Uh, and Mayfield, he's got to quit throwing these picks. I mean, as bad as things are, you know. Uh, I noticed when he was he seemed to be under center for the first part of the game. Then he started going back in that into that shotgun, and every time he seems to do that, he ends up running for his life. I don't know. When they play the Patriots, they'll probably they'll probably be up for the game. I wouldn't be surprised if they kick some ass when they play the Patriots, but I think they're capable of doing it. But they they gotta they gotta act as a cohesive unit. You know? Not a great start to the year so far. We're two and four. Yeah. Uh, well, the schedule gets a bit easier um, down the stretch, but we've got the Patriots coming off the bye week. You you yeah. said you wouldn't be surprised if we if we came out and looked good. Um, how optimistic well, think, are you? Like what what are you looking for the rest of the season? Well, I, I think if they end up being five hundred, I think they'd be doing damn good the way they started out. If they, if they if they uh, get their act together, uh, you know, I mean, they got to play Pittsburgh. They got to play Pittsburgh twice. They got to play. They got to play uh, a Baltimore again. You know, Baltimore's going to be pissed at them, and they're playing. Of course, they're playing Baltimore and Cleveland, so that that, that could help a lot. But the trouble is, they never win a game in Cleveland. Yeah, we're zero and three at home so far. <laughs> Playing at home, maybe it's the best thing for him. I don't know. It's unbelievable. Uh, I, I don't know uh, why that could be the case. Uh, you think you think that they bust their ass and try to put 
put on a, a winning game for the people that are paying to see them, you know. Uh, it's a, these guys, if they win a game at home, these guys just tear the, tear the place apart. They don't think so happy. <laughs> well, there's, there's always hope, Matthew. <laughs> there's always hope. My my hope is is squarely on the fact that our schedule becomes significantly easier. Nobody said it was easy being a Browns fan. <laughs> That's true. No, no, nobody has ever said that. Um, if we weathered the last couple, two or three years being a Browns fan, I guess we'll weather this one too. Yeah, we already have two wins. That's more than we had for two and a half years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, I'll let you get back to your movie. Yeah. Okay, man. Good talk to you, buddy. Go Browns. Go Browns. Love you, Grandpa. (laughs) Bye. So Grandpa's saying he's worried about Baker because he's starting to look like Testaverde. Although, if you had asked me, or any Browns fan, really, (laughs) two years ago, if we could have Vinny Testaverde back, I think we'd all... I think we might take it. We would have all taken it. So I don't don't know that the sky is necessarily falling um, as, as much as he thinks it is. I mean, my take is the offense looks pretty darn good in this game. I mean, we the turnovers is what killed us, but the turnovers were fluky. I, I, mean, I mean, Baker's the the thing to complain about with Baker is that he is not as accurate as he was last year. Part of the accuracy thing in this game, I wondered in the second half if it had to do with his rib his or hip. his hip injury. Like, if your hip hurts, you're not going to be. I feel like you're not going to be able to turn and really like your motion is going to be impacted ever so slightly. Enough that your accuracy might not quite be there. Now, all of his inaccurate passes were not within that window after he hurt his hip. So that's not the whole thing. But I can see that being a factor in in this whole thing. And it did seem like we were not ripping the ball downfield quite as much after the hip injury. There was a lot of screen passes and short short passes um, from that point on. So, And I don't know if that was a, like, conscious decision or i mean we were moving the ball at the we same were time moving the ball and the so whole game. It, it might have just been what was effective at the at the time i i agree with you some some of the turnovers just feel fluky to me like baker could have made better passes on the the jarvis end zone interception and the one at the end of the game there to hilliard they they were behind the hilliard's got to catch that one it wasn't that bad of a pass but Nick Chubb fumbles for the first time in his career in this game. Um, Baker throws an interception on a slant to OBJ because OBJ gets taken out by the defender just on kind of an incidental like traffic contact play, which he's just thrown to a spot. Like that's going to be it's a, hard to get too angry. That's going to be a pick. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what he's supposed to do if he trusts the read. You know. Yeah. That one's hard to really complain about. The Chubb one felt fluky too. It's like he, he never there was some fumbles. traffic. There was some traffic there. He caught that ball and like never felt like he had fully secured it whenever like contact came and it pops out. I mean, ugh. those two other ones though were the really rough ones. Like where the ball f- f- slips through Jarvis's hands and just th- landed right in the safety's breadbasket. Like, he was coming over just flying, and Jarvis happens to redirect it exactly second, where he was going. He redirects it a second time. Yeah. I know. 
and it just like lands right in his arms. And the same exact thing happened with the Hilliard one, yeah, which was he, atrocious. Like Hilliard's was really bad. Hilliard needs to catch that ball. That ball should be caught every single time. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit behind him, but that ball has to be caught. And he's one on one ISO against KJ Wright. Like that's a good matchup. It's a good read. It's how unlucky is it that the only guy in the frame happens to be right there to catch the ball? When there was a slow-mo that they did in the broadcast, um, and so when I was watching this again on Game Pass, I slowed that even down and watched the ball come in. Like He's just there, his hands are there, and his hands are just too far apart. And so it hits one of them. You can like freeze frame it, yeah. and it looks like he's catching the ball because the ball is right between his hands, yeah. and it just bounces off one, deflects off the other, and goes like right through. It's absolutely inexcusable. I will say, with all the things that were seemingly either unlucky or unjust towards the Browns, you can't let a team block a punt on you. That's inexcusable, and that sets you up. That was a game changer. We we were it was a momentum handily swinger. winning like, that game in the first yeah. half. Was it twenty to six at that point? It was point? twenty to six at that particular point in time. And they That's got a, a they only got moment. a field goal after it, I think, if I'm remembering the sequence correctly. But um that was the period where things started to swing and their offense really like started to put some points on the board. It was not not good. All right. Well Let's go ahead and move on. But before we do, um, we actually want to tell you a little bit about one of our fellow podcast friends. We actually just moved to a new uh, podcast platform, which none of you listening to this should even have known about. But it's pretty cool. It gives smaller podcasts like ours a chance to add some different resources and allows us to interact with others and cross-promote with other podcasts. And so that's what we're doing here. Um, want to let you know about a great fantasy football podcast the Red Shirts Fantasy Football Podcast. If you're a football fan, you're probably playing fantasy football, so check out this great podcast. NFL Network researcher Matt Okada and sports physical therapist Matthew Betts work together to bring you hard-hitting, accurate, and entertaining fantasy football content. From Okada's insider info to Betts' injury analysis, these guys are here to help you win your league. They talk fantasy football year-round covering redraft and dynasty, scouting rookies, answering keeper questions, projecting the season, decoding the waiver wire, and much more. Find them wherever you get your podcasts and online at redshirtsfantasyfootball.com. We're down a brother this week, but instead of doing a two-man pod, we're going to call for some reinforcements. Uh, we're going to call our good friend Pete Smith, who we haven't talked to, so we're excited to have Pete on the pod. Hey, Pete, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. So, tell Pete, I'm I'm sure you have some some novel thoughts on this this Brown Seahawks game. Um, Michael and I just discussed it a little bit, gave some thoughts. I mean, what is what is your large takeaway? Browns were in this game, and it's frustrating for so many reasons. Um, kind of, what did you see? Uh, I saw a team lose because they turned over the football. Uh, you, you have. Four turnovers, you you have a punt blocked, you're going to lose most of it. In fact, if you have a punt blocked, your win percentage, if you if you block a punt, you are like in, in excess of 90% likely to win that game. So in a lot of ways, it felt like once that happened, 
that it was a matter of time before they lost. And the fact that the the Seahawks didn't like capitalize more on some of those mistakes really felt fortunate. Um, yeah, the Browns like were the fact that we were in it to the bitter end was kind of remarkable given the number of turnovers and the blocked punt. Right. So like coming into the season, I was not, I, I thought two and four was a realistic possibility. Um, I, I thought it would be more games like this one than say the unexpected, you know, ass whooping put on by the Titans and, and then the 49ers just boat racing them. I, I, I thought they'd have games like this where they just have to figure things out and they just don't know enough uh, to really beat teams that are like the, the Seahawks are a good quality football team. They know who they are. They know what they're going to do. Um, that is, you know, that that's a team that under, you know, has expectations, has been to the playoffs, has all those reps and the Browns are, you know, be, I think because of the talent they added, there's this sense that they sort of skipped a lot of steps and which is why when they traded for Odell Beck, I, I didn't think they were going to trade for Odell Beckham initially and obviously was wrong uh, because I felt like they were a year away from sort of putting it all together. And so far it, it feels like there's still that that's the case. I mean, so much of the first half of the season is or this, this first six games is about turnovers. They, every game uh, has been, the Browns have turned over the ball way too much. Baker Mayfield has 12 turnovers. Obviously, they aren't all his fault. I think you can you can say it's a it's a team stat in this case. Um, their their turnover differential is negative five, which is not good. Um, and and when you do that, you can have all the talent in the world, but you put so much to chance in terms of you're giving the opponent so many more opportunities. And you know the defense didn't play terribly. I, I think. You know, obviously they had a couple drives where they Russell Wilson is just the best quarterback in football and and showed it. It was unbelievable. But, some of those third like some of those third downs, like when they needed something and we like sent pressure and it was all up in his face and he re- released the ball like well before his receiver made a break. Like it was phenomenal to watch. Right, and he's he's him and Tyler Lockett and obviously Will Disley before he, you know, tore his Achilles. Unfortunately, I mean they are. You know, they, they were coming in completing like 85.1% of the passes attempted at those two guys. Just that's it, out of this world insanity. Uh, you, you know, if you do that on air, you're good. And they're doing that in live live football games. So, you know, like I, I totally understand the frustration. And, and, and I was angry at, at certain times at, at decisions Baker Mayfield made. Not because I think Baker Mayfield isn't good, but I'm mad that he's making decisions that like he knows better, and and they're still doing it. Which and, which decisions in particular were um, incited your anger? The interception in the red zone where he went from Jarvis Landry. It never had a chance. It was not a good throw. It was rushed, and then ultimately it led to an interception. And then just like it did the previous week, which is a big reason they've lost those two games. You know, the, the Antonio Callaway tip to interception set up a touchdown for the 49ers. Uh, that went from the, that wasn't a bad decision on Baker's part though. No, 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 no. But I mean, it just, that went from the Browns are back in this game have really survived that initial wave by the 49ers to the Browns are down 
multiple scores, this game feels like it's over. And then this past week, Baker makes a bad decision. Uh, the ball's way behind Landry. He never had a chance. That ball's tipped and intercepted. And then that they, and then uh, Russell Wilson goes right down the field, uh, it, it, you know, as if he just willed it. And they score a touchdown, and that's, you know, they, they, they missed the extra point, but that was at least a nine-point swing, and again, they lose by four. So those are things where, you know, this is a young team. This is the team figuring it out. This is the team with the head coach who's learning on the job. Those are growing pains you're going to have happen, and they suck. They're not fun, uh, but they are reps they have to have happen, and hopefully they learn from them because clearly they didn't learn much from the Tennessee Titans game where they got beat by 30, uh, but it was a lot of the same thing. The game was close until turnovers came in, and then it, it blew wide open. So that's the biggest thing with this team. You don't turn over the ball, you're going to be in good shape. So were there any other specific Baker decisions that were frustrating to you? I definitely agree on that Jarvis pass at the end of the first half. It was a poor pass, shouldn't have been thrown in the first place. I think a lot of people are mad at Freddie for even – like calling the plays there and the way he was managing the the clock there, um, but even I was I think okay with the call I, that didn't bother me as much. But the decision on the pass was bad. What else bothered you with Baker yesterday? Well, the slant to no one. Um, it, it drives me insane. The first clearly, interception. Yes, clearly something went wrong um, in terms of somebody running the wrong route. And obviously Odell Beckham ultimately runs into a linebacker. Uh, so the play was just over before it started. And then for whatever reason, the ball went there anyway to no one, then it gets intercepted. And again, this is one of those things where like, you know, better, you have to actually look at this to see what's there. And, 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 and you know, in that situation, they did not capitalize on that turnover. The Browns ultimately held them to the first three and out of the game and they punted. But again, it's an opportunity where you're on their side of the field you don't get anything out of it and you sort of give them a reprieve and you know, that's sort of the result. So, and that's happening in a lot of these games and, and I am overwhelmingly confident Baker Mayfield's not only going to get through this, but he's going to be every bit the quarterback. Everybody hopes he's is because even, even yesterday when he wasn't giving the ball away at times, he looked like Russell Wilson. Like his his navigating the pocket on a few of those plays, extending uh, the the third down where he you know managed to maneuver in the pocket and ultimately came back to Antonio Callaway. He yep. looked fantastic. Like there are moments where you're seeing there, and then you know you, you have to sort of realize that he's a second year quarterback. And I think all of our expectations were a little out of whack, myself included. I, I didn't expect this type of struggle in year two. And, and again, I think he's going to be fine, but, uh, you know, I, I thought it would be, again, I thought they'd lose games, uh, like they did against the Seahawks, but I, I, I can't say I've expected, uh, Baker Mayfield to have 11 interceptions in six games. Yeah. And the, have you seen the stat being thrown around about like expected, uh, interceptions, um, across the league and how Baker has like five more than expected based on the interceptable passes that he's thrown. Like our luck on some of those things is not really going in our favor on top of the fact that we've been playing harder opponents in these first six games. So things are certainly stacking against us in, in some ways there. Right. And, and I, I hope, and I, I believe, and I expect that 
through the bye week and the fact that once they get through the Patriots, they play the Sisters of the Poor basically nine weeks in a row, that things are going to get reset very well, and they're going to play really good football. And almost to the point, and again, I'm probably setting myself up for disappointment here, but to the probably. point where I, where I think we are going to have to wonder if the Browns are actually as good as they are going to play in the second half because they aren't playing as good a teams and they, and they basically played all the teams that were good early. And we're not going to have a really good barometer for where they actually are uh, because I think, and I'm not saying they can't beat the Patriots. It's just the Patriots are really good and they're at home. Uh, I, I, it would not surprise me in the least if the Browns win eight of the last nine. Yeah. I mean, we've got some hard games for sure. Um, so wait, you're throwing out eight of the last nine would be throwing out the Patriots game, right? And then the hardest game in there is probably the Bills. And I don't know what to make of the Bills, honestly. I have no the idea. defense is good, but yeah, yeah, it's a I hard mean, way to wait in the NFL if you just yeah, have a good defense yeah. and nothing else. And I and, and I'm not afraid of Josh Allen. I'm not. I, I still think. Josh Allen is bad, um, and and I think the Browns would would beat the hell out of him. But yeah, I think Sean McDermott's a great coach. I think he gets the most out of uh, his talent. Particularly, they they have a a, a talented defensive uh, roster, but they're 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 certainly ahead of schedule. I think he does a great job uh, adding guys like Ed Oliver helps, and they've got a decent line. But nothing about the Bills scares me. I mean, and honestly, none of these teams really do, even the ones that beat them. I mean, I was nervous about the Seahawks, but overall, I still feel like if the Browns just don't turn the ball over, they can beat anyone they play. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we've proven that. And even in that stupid Titans game, we were in it through three quarters and then it just got out of control. Um, looking forward to the next 10 games, what is, the, other than the schedule being easy, is there something that you're looking at that this is the biggest reason for optimism that two and four isn't necessarily a true reflection of how good this Browns team is over a 16 game season? Well, I think talent plays a lot into it. I mean, they, they, they are good. They have good players. Nick Chubb is the second best running back in the league right now. And behind you know, Christian McCaffrey. Yeah, and McCaffrey has an argument for the MVP. Quick, uh, quick pause on this. So I heard the best, best nickname for Christian McCaffrey yesterday. Somebody apparently is calling him Derry Sanders. <laughs> That's pretty great. Anyways, sorry, I had to include that. Derry Sanders, uh, I love it. Yeah, so <laughs> I think... I think uh, Nick Chubb is, is, is playing out of his mind, even with a questionable line in front of him. Questionable to the point where Freddie Kitchens doesn't trust, uh, particularly the right side of his line, to do certain things. I think when you pull down by the goal line, you're, telling, you're, you're saying that uh, you, you don't trust the five guys in front of you. You just shove the guys across the line from him. And so we saw, that, were- we saw that yesterday a bunch, and it didn't work out for us on the goal line pulling guards we, we we would pull kush we would pull batonia we would pull whoever the color commentator was grilling the browns for this i mean do you feel as strongly about pulling guards on the goal line that it's not a good idea just because the defense is kind of pinning their ears back and coming after you 
Right. It's not a good idea. And I think that's a product of the fact that Freddie Kitchens doesn't believe Eric Cush can get, a, can get anybody off the line next to Chris Hubbard and, next year. Uh, because if you look at, you look at uh, last year, they were not afraid to do that. And four of the same guys are back. There's one guy who's different. And that, and, and I think here shortly we're going to see that guy get put on the bench in favor of Wyatt Teller. Uh, but when you pull guards, you're telling me I can't just have my five guys push their five guys off the ball. Uh, if, if you have to, and, and there are certain th- areas where, where they were great pulling that pin and pull action. But when you're shooting gaps and you can basically, so let's say you're pulling a guard from uh, the Kush right to left. Uh, and you know, you have a, a defensive tackle right in his gap. As soon as if he slants down or he's attacking that gap right behind him, you know, he's in the backfield. There's nobody there to stop that. And you can now bubble the play or clog it or whatever. But from Freddie's standpoint, if you don't trust those guys to move, uh, move them off the ball, then I can't really blame him for doing it because you're saying he can't move that guy off the ball. I got to do something that's going to try to help. And, and I think maybe they should have just gone a different way, run behind Greg Robbins and Joe Batonio and JC Treader on the left. But that's why that happens. And, and the criticism was absolutely right. But I certainly understand Freddie's viewpoint on it. If you're saying that Eric Cush is too weak to get somebody off the line. Yeah. I mean, it also seems like we don't have a fullback on the roster and we don't run behind a lead blocker. And on the goal line, if in a situation, if you want to pull a guard, you don't have another line of defense. If, if the guy gets in the backfield, he's, he's at the ball carrier and, and plays over. Um, do you think Wyatt Teller is going to come in? You hinted at it there. you think Wyatt Teller will be the starting right guard against New England in week, what is it, eight? I hope so. Uh, I certainly think that's where this is headed. Just a question of when. Uh, when they traded for him, I didn't think it was just a stopgap move. You traded for a career left guard, and you have a left guard. Uh, you weren't dry, adding him just for depth. The only way he's going to ultimately play the left guard is after the season. If you decide Joel Batonio is going to be your left tackle, I don't think that's likely to happen. So it always made sense that he was going to be a right guard. He's To me, he was the fourth best guard in that class. Way, way, way above Austin Corbett. Uh, <laughs> And, and I think that's where this is going. And I, I, and I love the trade. I think it was fantastic. I think uh, the, the, the Bills had a really nice player who had a bunch of starting experience, and, and they gave him away for a profit of an extra seventh-round pick. But I felt like he, he's better than that. And I think Freddie Kitchens made a great trade. I, I think he fits what this team wants to be. Uh, White Teller's just a gritty uh, dick in terms of being a guard. Like, if you watch him at Virginia Tech, he's just a gritty dirty dude who, who will do whatever it takes, but he's a better athlete than he's, he's a big, thick dude at 320. Uh, and I think that's where the, and, and he's a really good pass protector, which I think was a, a key in adding him. I think the only reason you, you bring in anybody like that uh, is for the sake of pass protection first, but he gives you more than Kush does. And I think let's put it this way. Ultimately, I think what at some point, the right guard and right tackle will be Wyatt Teller and Drew Forbes. How? What makes you so confident that Forbes a, is slated for the tackle spot? I've seen you say that on Twitter and stuff a few times, um, and I don't necessarily okay. disagree with you, but I don't know what signs I'm looking at 
um, that tell me that that's the case? Sure. So the first thing they did uh, is they um, they performed all those roster gymnastics to make it so they could bring him back uh, with uh, injury reserve designation return. Yep. Um, if he which was included which included dropping Greg Robinson. Yeah, I mean that they they went to real effort to make sure that this dude was available to them. Yeah. Um and they have a thousand guards. I mean they had they, they got Justin McCray, they got Wyatt Teller, they got all these guys, and yet they went all to the, this trouble to get a rookie um back. And I think that's a hundred percent about him being the tackle. And and I think um well first and foremost, Chris Hubbard sucks. He can't play dead. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't um, see any way that they keep him on the books at his cap cap number for next year. No, I think, and in perfect world, they trade him uh, because he does have value as a swing tackle. Um, but uh, I, I think this is what what they want to have. Drew Forbes has the athleticism to play anything. He is a freak, um, and typically, certainly, uh, guard is very valuable. Obviously, that's why Joel Batoni was there. It's very critical. Uh, for having a shorter quarterback, but then you you go and get Wyatt Teller, uh, and I think that's where that's going. So again, you go to these roster gymnastics to bring back this kid, and the only position that makes sense for it, you have Kendall Lamb, who at the time was not injured. It's not like they had to uh, they had to have him or anything. But uh, so you go to the trouble. He's it, it, the only position that makes sense at that point is tackle and right tackle because it's uh, I, I think ultimately they're going to go left tackle in the off season and particularly in the draft and they they're they're left their line for the future or, or what they're hoping for is drafted kid Batonio Treader or they better be uh that's Treader, oh my goodness they better sign that guy tomorrow uh and then uh Teller and then ultimately Forbes on the right tackle which will give them substantially more strength and and still have the athleticism they want that fits what Campen likes in that position. So and I, be very affordable, even with re-signing Teller at a higher cap number. Or signing Treader. Signing Treader, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. 100%. Yeah, 100%. That, you, you'd have two premium lineman contracts with Petonio and Treader. And basically are, rookie are, contracts the rest of the way. It, absolutely, and that's ideal. And, and, I, and I think uh, Dorsey absolutely believes himself, Austin Corbett aside, that he can go get a, a good tackle uh, that Campen can groom. It's a very uh, promising tackle class this coming draft, and I think that's where this is headed. You can almost, you know, the, the insanity could happen. You can basically pencil it in, offensive tackle in that first pick. Yeah. So the my question on the Forbes front is we saw him repping throughout the preseason at guard, basically because we didn't have a right guard and like there wasn't like a clear-cut winner there, and I think they were probably hoping that he might be an option to step in from day one. Has he been getting – I don't know the answer to this one way or the other. Has he even been back on the practice field? I know he got hurt, and he's been on IR. Does that mean he's off the field? Like do we even know if he's been getting or had any reps at right tackle? He has had right tackle reps because he did before, before in training camp in the preseason. Um, I don't know – where he is in his recovery, because I don't even know what he actually did to his knee. Um, but again, they had, they went to the trouble 
to to make it so they could get this kid back. So clearly, it, you know, whether it's now they definitely love him. I know they love him. I, my question is, what spot they have for him? And I think right tackle makes sense. I I hear what you're saying. Um, it, I'm interested to see how it shakes out, basically. Right, right guard. Like I say, it, it's easier in terms of function and in terms of assignment and, and, and fits what he wants to do. Like he, he wants to get his hands on and just drive the hell out of people. And, you know, that's he, he, when, when the Browns were sort of going through this, this uh, mode of evaluating and all this stuff, he was picking stuff up quickly. He's a big physical kid. And when they repped him, he was, you know, promising enough that he put himself in that conversation, which is certainly what you want to have happen. Uh, so then all of a sudden it was basically like, well, maybe this kid will end up doing it. Obviously he got hurt. They made the trade they did. And, and I think they found a, a great option. So it just makes all the sense in the world that right tackle, because ultimately I think that's what he was drafted for anyway. I think when they initially drafted him, it was for tackle. And then they just sort of found himself in a situation where he could step in play guard at a reasonable enough level that where he was interesting to look at. And then they ran into the situation they did. That makes sense. Pete, moving to the other side of the ball, how do you feel about the, the state of our secondary going the rest of the way? I mean, it's, it's been such a fluky season with, with Ward and Greedy missing time. I would, I would suspect they're back for, for the New England game. Our safeties have not looked good. I thought Randall has looked really terrible, actually, in a, in a number of spots this year. Um, going forward for the rest of the season, but then also in the future, I mean, are we looking at a reset at the safety position again um, in the offseason, do you think? I have a long expect – I did not expect Randall to play as poorly as he has. Um, I, I agree. I don't think he's very good. Uh, been, been very good for a guy who, you know, has made it – Plain as day, he wants a big bag of money. Um, and, and the Browns at one point were talking extension with him. Um, I, I think the Browns seriously have to uh, move on after the season. Uh, if he gets his paid handsomely elsewhere, more power to him. I just don't think it's uh, a smart move here. So, yeah, I do think the safety position is largely a, a teardown situation. With the exception of, I really like Eric Murray. Um, I think he's been he's a really been nice solid, player. and I think we're only have him for this year. I don't <laughs> think we have him under con- team control through next year. I believe he's a restricted free agent after the year, isn't he? Uh, I don't know if he's a restricted free agent. What I do know is the only guy under contract at safety after this year is Sheldrick Redwine. Um, so it's literally all of them are are going to be free agents unless I know. So you know, obviously. I, I think they were expecting more out of Randall than they've so far gotten. It certainly doesn't mean he can't give you more, but I, I, I have been wildly underwhelmed. I didn't think it was going to work ultimately the way some people thought he did. He's just not that guy to me. And I do think your goal ultimately, th- those are the two positions, offensive tackle and safety. that are the, the biggest needs for this team I thought was going to have coming into the season. Uh, strong safety. I thought Randall would be good. Strong safety has been um, interesting with their committee approach. Jermaine Whitehead can't play dead. Um, I, I Morgan Burnett was wildly poor yesterday. Multiple times he basically stopped right by a tackle, second guessing himself, and then got beat by Chris Carson. Um, so yeah, I think safety's got to be a 
focus after this year. Uh, the corners, obviously, they've missed Greedy and they've missed Denzel Ward. I, I think Terrence Mitchell and 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 uh, the other one, TJ Carey. Played, yeah, yeah TJ Carey has played admirably, but I think yesterday in particular, you were basically sitting there going, "Man, when are these guys going to come back?" And that really hadn't happened too much up until this point. Um, but that you know, that's a good situation to have that they had enough depth. Uh, I applaud them for being as aggressive as they were in that front. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they obviously missed them. I think TJ Carey would be substantially better being able to go home to the slot where he's a better player and arguably a better tackle than, tackler than most of the safeties. I think that helps. It also just gives them options in terms of how they want to play teams in terms of coverage. Um, so, yeah, I think they're ready to have those guys back. I think the corner position is in relatively good hands. And safety is abominable right now. I'm interested to see if over the second half of the season, if uh, they scale back Morgan Burnett's reps in favor of Justin Burris, who has actually looked fairly decent in his limited time out there. Uh, they could. The, the issue is, 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 is so long as they want to play big nickel, and I don't have an issue with that as a defense. I have an issue with that as the personnel they have. Um, I think... Justin Burris is more built to be a deeper safety and Morgan Burnett's more built to be that slot safety. That's up near the line of scrimmage. And I, Justin, Justin Burris was a guy that I really liked at the end of preseason. I was sort of really happy with him, both in terms of special teams and what he did on the field. Uh, he and Eric Murray, I, I like better than all the other guys. Uh, and I wish I'd see more Eric Murray because I think he's been, he's, he's sort of a Jack of all trades, master of none guy. And he does a lot of things, reasonably well and he and he becomes a pleasant surprise as opposed to expectations so when he does stuff you're not sitting there going man where you know finally this guy's done something it's more like oh there's eric murray again and justin burris is sort of the same deal and i like what he brings it to the problem is the browns right now and, and this is partly because of the injuries have 12 dbs on their roster um and they're obviously gonna have to move on from a couple of them when they get these corners back corners back so i don't know if they're going to ultimately get rid of justin burris again or if they're going to get rid of you know somebody else to keep him because they like what he's done more than say a jermaine whitehead or uh morgan burnett yeah we have 12 tbs and seven wide receivers right now which is yep just crazy to me we're so light we're we're so we have very few linebackers because we're playing big nickel i mean there's you kind of start to make sense of it when you look at the roster. Um, we're light on tight end right now because of the Njoku injury. We don't carry a fullback. Full so, back. I mean, that kind of accounts for all of it. Yeah, so Pete, now six games in, one of the other questions coming into the year was was the coaching staff. What is your kind of observation thus far on how, how the coaching staff's doing, how incorporating Todd Monken into the offense is doing, bringing in Steve Wilkes? I, th- I think it has been great so far. Um, obviously, uh, I'd like to see the defense play better at times, but a, an upgrade over Greg Williams for sure. Um, so, like, rookie head coach Freddie Kitchens, what's your grade through six games? I don't know about a grade, but he looks like a rookie head coach. Uh, there are certain things I really like about Freddie Kitchens. There are certain things that irritate me about Freddie Kitchens that I, I think have to get better. Um, I, I, I feel like... In the same same way, he's fantastic for Baker Mayfield and this roster in general, and sort of the way he sort of doesn't let himself get too high or too low, and he doesn't let outside noise sort of 
be a thing and he doesn't sit there and try to, you know, try to manage uh, Baker Mayfield's emotions or anything else and basically just lets them be who they are, which I think is really positive. At the same time, it feels like at times he trusts them too much, which I suppose is a problem that's okay to have. And like he was trying to get way too far ahead of himself in terms of the idea that he was going to try to didn't want to run the ball on that, on that drive where Baker threw the interception at Jarvis Landry because he wanted to save enough clock to try to get the Seahawks, the ball use three timeouts, get the ball back and score again. Um, and, 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 and in theory, I like where his head's at in terms of you want to score as many points as possible, but it, it, you got to score the first one first and you should never take anything out of your playbook that can get you to that point. And if it works out and you have enough time and you're able to keep your timeouts great, because you know, there's any number of times where you hand the ball to Nick Chubb and he just keeps running. And then there's the end zone. It took no clock to get there. So I, I think he voluntarily disarmed himself in that respect. I love the fact that he's never afraid to, Give the put the ball in Baker's hands. I I, I have the, the exact same feeling with him, and I, I don't I don't want him ever to be sort of pl- afraid or playing around him. Uh, so I, and I loved, I absolutely loved going forward on fourth and seven. That and fourth and seven call made me feel great too. I loved. It was the perfect spot in the field, made all the sense in the world, and that really contributed to us going up twenty to six. Like we talk about how great that lead was and how like it was crazy that we gave it up, but like we don't have that lead if you've got a conservative head coach that isn't willing to go for it there. Right. So if the Browns had won that game, I think a big focal point for me, or a, a big sort of determining factor would have been the fact that the Browns were willing to go for it on fourth and seven in that no man's land. And that's exactly what that is. There, there's no satisfactory move there um, in terms of punting or kicking the field goal. Meanwhile, the Seahawks at their, at our 38, 39 yard line punted. Right. And the Browns get the ball on the eight yard line and go right down the field and score 92 yard drive and score in three plays. Like, that was yeah, a three play draft. And if it, I felt like if the Browns had won, that would have been what we were talking about. The Pete Carroll was afraid to, to trust his quarterback, to trust his offense, to trust his kicker in that situation, and basically went the super conservative give up route and, and got killed for it. And, and, and Freddie Kitchens was the aggressor, the guy who went with the math, the guy who trusts his players. And I felt like when they went for it and they got it, one, I, I think the players respond to that in a big way anyway, even if you don't get it. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that they, with the way they got it and everything about it, they got a massive gain on that. I think it was 27 yards to Jarvis Landry. Great throw and catch. But the energy that came off of that play and just the, there was like a jolt in the stadium and the players. And, they, and, and right now, at that point, it felt like they could take over the game. And then for a minute, it looked like they were going to before they obviously turned the ball over in the red zone. So there's certain things uh, that I like Freddie Kitchens with. I like the fact that this year and last year, he does not care how long you've been with the team or who you belong to or any of that crap. If you can help them win, he's going to put you in. And Ricky Seals Jones is a great example of that. Like he, he a guy who he had some familiarity with in Arizona. Uh, you know, he, he, they bring him in 
at the deadline or at, at the, you know, basically right before the season. And they feel like he can help him be right in there. And he has basically become that Brashad Perryman type extra element where you're sitting there going, well, where'd this guy come from and who gave up on him in the same way you're sitting there going, well, the Ravens gave up on Perryman too early. And you're sitting there looking at the Ravens or I'm sorry, the Cardinals tight ends. And you're going, they gave up this guy for this. And I, I really like the fact that he just doesn't care from that standpoint. Um, I, I, I'm really hoping that, that he can get a line he trusts so he can stop living in this too tight end mess because Demetrius <laughs> Harris sucks, uh, has just not been worth it. And Farrell Brown is is the God bless him. He's trying type player where he's play, he's really he's playing better than you think. He's really in over his head and he's and he's trying to sort of, you know, fight as hard as he can. And, and I can sort of respect him on that point. But if you were just saying, I'm going to put my 11 best players on the field, who are those guys? I think Demetrius Harris and Farrell Brown, you don't get to those guys until about 20 or so. And you only have like 24, 25 on offense. Yeah, no, it's so true. I'm super interested to see what our tight end sets look like when we do go 12 personnel and two tight ends once Njoku gets back, you know, for the last six games or so of the season, assuming he's going to be healthy to come off IR. Because early in the season, we saw him paired with Demetrius Harris. I want to know if it's going to continue that way or if we're going to see more um, more options out there with Ricky Seals-Jones. Well, how often does Seals-Jones even line up on the end of the line? Or is he mostly he, in the he slot? always seems like he's he's standing up as, as like a big slot? Mostly. Um, they've they've uh, done a few things where they set him up is as the second tight end on, on one side and then usually motion into something else. Uh, but yeah, he for all intents and purposes, he's a he's a he he is what we hoped uh, we would get out of Seth Devolve. He's that motion, you know, he's that that move tight end as opposed to a guy where you're sitting there going, well, we're going to line him up. And, in, and to answer your question, I, I expect when Njoku comes back, that unless Njoku is just really, really effective blocking, that you're going to see Demetrius Harris because they always want that true why in there. Uh, but if they, they may do some things where, you know, in, in some passing situations or some things like that where they um, – have Njoku be the inline guy and then put uh, Ricky Seals-Jones in space or as a wing or something like that. Yeah. So looking to the second half of the season, like what kind of – the Browns have a bye week. They've got a chance to like evaluate things, take a fresh look. I think we'll see some minor changes. I don't think there any like wholesale changes need to be made other than like discipline. But like, what are you hoping to see? Is there anything in particular that you're like looking for as we come out the gates um, for Game Seven? Sure. First and foremost, I think uh, by that point you're going to have far more comfort between Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham, and that has been a massive problem. Odell Beckham had 101 yards receiving, and yet that still felt like it was really hard work to get there. Because, you know, there were situations where they just weren't on the same page. Two like, drops Odell, in the first quarter. 
Yeah, Odell Beckham comes out of his break and the ball's already on him and he wasn't expecting it and he can't hang on to it or, you know, balls that weren't, you know, placed very well relative to where Odell Beckham was. So, you know, it's great that he got 101 yards, but it was like, it almost felt detrimental at times to how hard they were trying to make this work. And then obviously he shuts everybody up by going with that 41 yard circus catch. Yeah. But I I think that's going to be the area that improves the most. Um, I think, you know, Antonio Callaway is going to benefit a great deal from the bye week. He benefited a great deal from the bye week last year. He Um, looked actually good this week. Like he looked like he was in a more comfortable role and executed what was asked of him. Like I, he didn't stick out in a bad way at all in this past game. Well, I think he was the guy who ran the wrong route on the slant that was intercepted. Uh, but, (laughs) but, but I agree. He was certainly better, but you look at last year, and he, he was just obviously as a rookie and he was swimming and all these other things. And, and he had all those drops and there were people who were ready to ship him back to wherever, uh, back to Gainesville, essentially, if he's even allowed there. No, um, he'd go and, to South and, Florida. Then uh, <laughs> the, he had the bye week and suddenly he was catching the ball better and he was really working hard on second effort. And there were a lot of plays where Baker Mayfield was finding him on scramble drill and type of those things. So, Look, obviously he, he he knows the offense better, I guess. Uh, but I think you, you you miss those those that time with the high ankle sprain in preseason, and you're you're suspended, and you miss all those reps, and you're just not there. And I think they're going to get back on the same page, and hopefully he's going to be more engaged because look, he is a jackass, but he's really talented, and 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 he's tantalizing in terms of all the things he can do. And there's no denying that. Like I hate relying on him, but I understand why you keep throwing him out there because he's really, really skilled in certain things he's able to do. So that should be better. Um, I'm hoping that Richard Higgins is going to be healthy and they can get that back going. And then Ricky seals Jones might actually get to introduce himself to his teammates. Like he gets here <laughs> he's thrown right in there and it's, and he's done a great job in that. Uh, and I'm sure some of this is like he's only got so much of the playbook he's exposed to and all these things, which certainly is going to help him in terms of that. So I, I, I think particularly in the passing game, it's just going to be sharper. I think it's going to be more consistent. I think the ball placement's going to get better. I think Baker Mayfield gets to take a badly needed sort of breath, look back at everything, reassess, you know, figure out what he's doing wrong, figure out what he's doing right, and really hammer down because, you know, Baker Mayfield is a guy who works exceptionally hard. And for all the things people don't like about him, those who that don't like, they can't deny that. They also can't deny that he hates losing, you know, it, it Oh, you can see it on his face on the sideline yes, this week. As, was... as a fan, as, 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 for all the fans and media who hate Freddie kitchens and the way he deals with the media, because he gives you nothing. Um, Baker Mayfield is extraordinarily satisfying. If you're a member of the media in terms of how he takes losses, because it, 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 he, he looks physically ill and angry and just bitter as hell. And he says things that are going to make you feel good, uh, ultimately, if they work, uh, that he's going to get it fixed and, and you believe him. So that's obviously going to happen. But I, I think they're just going to be substantially better. And a lot of that's going to be because who you are in the preseason, what you think you're going to be, tends to change. As the season rolls on and six weeks in, obviously they're they're 
six weeks different than they were, and that evolution has happened, and maybe they add some things and, and get to some things that they had meant to put in that they haven't really done since that, but you sort of figure out who you are during the season, and now that you have a good idea of who you are, you can focus on specifically that stuff and get better at it. So, again, I am putting a lot of weight in the bye week. I thought the Browns came out last year after the bye week, and we're just so much better and crisper and just Baker Mayfield was better. And a lot of those receivers were better. I am expecting a similar impact this time around. And in addition to that, just sort of works the schedule out that way, but I have very high hopes. Uh, and, and I think the bye week should also be very good for Freddie kitchens for all those reasons. we talked about the fact he is a rookie co- head coach that he can go back and sort of digest six weeks of, you know, regular season NFL football and hopefully make some positive changes in addition to continuing what he's done that has been effective. And I'm hoping that a lot of the things we saw in the sea in the Seahawks game carry over being aggressive on fourth down, being able to trust your guys to go out there and, and make a big play, showing your faith in them that you're willing to let them, you know, put it on the line for you and those types of things. So I, I'm optimistic as hell. And, and, and some of that is based undoubtedly in the fact that, that, that I thought they'd be two and four. I was really hoping they'd get to three and three. I thought they'd be in great shape, but I always thought if the Browns were two and four, they were still in a great spot to win this division and ultimately make the playoffs. They are a very flawed team. They have real issues that are going to prevent them from being, you know, likely being a Super Bowl team. Obviously if you can get to the playoffs, you know, you roll the dice and anything can happen, but the tackle situation, the safeties, just getting better in another year. I think the Browns, will, assuming they don't screw up the offseason uh, and some of the contracts they have to get done, uh, I think they are going to be, along with the Ravens, uh, two of the teams that I think are going to be favorites to win the Super Bowl next year. Yeah. Um, the Browns, it is frustrating that we're 2-4 and because we can see easily how we could have pulled out some some wins earlier in the schedule, most notably with this last could this be last, forward too. This last game in the in the Rams game. Uh, but I think some of the things we've been frustrated with that the offense just doesn't seem to have the rhythm like it these are things that we should have expected from a new coaching staff bringing new talent onto the team. Like it shouldn't be a complete shock and surprise. And over the course of the six games, we have seen improvement in many of these areas. And what is biting us now, particularly in this last game, is more bad fortune and some like small little plays here and there where, yes, Baker might have had bad placement and made a poor decision on that Landry throw, but it still was bad luck that it bounced right into the dude's bread basket. Like that, that ball drops to the ground, you know, Eight times out of ten, probably. And um, that's just not what happened this time. And so you got to think that some of those things are going to regress to the mean and we're going to continue to get better, continue to gel, and that should give us some good chances here in the second half. So I do have a question for you, and this is less looking forward and more evaluating our team at this point. But I keep watching the Browns, and I think we expected this defense to win because we would dominate at the defensive line. And 
I don't know if you asked a Browns fan right now that they would really feel like we are winning up front consistently. However, I have seen you publicly go on the record multiple times defending Olivier Vernon in particular and others. Go through that starting front four and give me your quick evaluation on where they're all at this year. You can probably breeze right past Miles Garrett because he's absolutely crushing it. Uh, but those other three guys are of interest to me because I think that you look at like a Larry Ogunjobi and he's flashed here and there, but you don't see him consistently wrecking anything. And he plays more of the grunt position. So that's probably just kind of goes with the territory. Sheldon Richardson. I don't think I don't, has he even registered a sack on the season? I don't know that he has. He's been great in pursuit on some of these plays. Like I know he stopped, um, I think it might have been Russell Wilson, like as he was streaking towards the pylon near the goal line this past game. And then Olivier Vernon, who has come under some public ridicule because I think a lot of people expected more sack numbers, but was a phenomenally graded player in this past game, I know. PFF had him in like the mid-90s. I mean, he absolutely crushed it in this particular game. But go ahead, Pete. I want to hear your quick thoughts. Okay, so Miles Garrett is doomsday. Period. Um, I am. I'm underwhelmed and frustrated with the interior defensive line. I think Sheldon Richardson has has been invisible for the most part. I think he has been far less than he should be to this point. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying that can't bounce back. Again, this is. I think the, the interior defensive line. The bye week is huge for them. Um, I think it's big for Tosh Lapoy who I think had, had a lot of uh, expectations, understandably, because of the group he has. I think that, but I, I, th- I, I think Larry Ogunjobi is okay. I, I wish he was better than he is. Um, I, I want to see more. Are they being asked to do things that they're not best at? Like, why are, we know that Sheldon Richardson and Larry Ogunjobi are incredibly talented football players. Like, why is it not translating on the field and we're not, like, seeing pressures and seeing, like, those splash plays that are making a difference? It's confounding to me. No, I think Sheldon Richardson was brought in specifically because he does what that. He's a guy who's supposed to be able to shoot gaps and get into the backfield and, and, and bubble plays. And at times you can see him do that, but he's supposed to be a better pass rusher than he has been. And it's not sack numbers. It's pressure, right? The Browns brought in two guys who are really well regarded in terms of their ability to bring pressure. Um, and Sheldon Richardson has largely underwhelmed in that, that fact. Um, again, I, I think that Larry Ogunjobi is okay. I, w- I want to see more. I-, I think he's got way more in there. Um, and-, and I think he will hopefully take a big step forward again after the bye week. Uh, so th- this could be, another, again, much like the offense, you know, when they start playing some of these bad teams, you know, like the Steelers with, you know, Mason Rudolph, the Cincinnati Bengals with, you know, three guys named Fred blocking for Andy Dalton or whoever at that point. Um, you know, when you have Kyler Murray, who's, you know, built like a child and is going against grown ass men to get, when they play the Browns, assuming he's around that long, uh, that they could really start putting up some big numbers and really sort of looking great. And then you, 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 you sort of reflect back and you're sort of, you're happy that they made those plays, but you're, you're sitting there going, well, why didn't we make them against, you know, these teams? Olivia Vernon has been everything 
that he was brought here to do. He is, in fact, he's arguably been better. Um, I wish he had more sacks because it, it would sort of show people who are looking for that just how good he's been. But, like, his game against Russell Wilson and company was masterful in his ability to sort of get past blocks, to be in the right spot to sort of take away plays, to put pressure on the quarterback. And he's been doing this a lot. Um, he did this against the Rams. He did this, you know, against the Ravens. He gets a lot of pressures and forces the ball to come out. And he doesn't always get, you know, credit for it. And even, you know, yesterday, the you know, both Miles Garrett's sacks were really coverage sacks uh, on plays that broke down, which I'm not going to take those away from him. Uh, those are, you know, that's good. Uh, but it, it felt like in a couple of those, if, if, if Garrett didn't get there, Vernon would have. Right. Uh, which what you want. But, like, right now you can make the case that the Browns have the best set of defensive ends in the league in terms of how well they're playing. Uh, and obviously Olivier Vernon punched that ball out for Chris Carson. Uh, that was picked up by Deborah Lawrence. Like he also uh, if, stopped, if he, uh, had a goal line stop. It might've been the two point conversion where he single-handedly um, took the running back out. Yeah. Like he, it, you know, and, and part of the problem is, is like Nick Chubb. He's very understated. He doesn't talk much. So there's that, but I, I, I think uh, the people who don't like what Olivier Vernon's getting, they actually go back and just watch, and you know, this is for fans like like they're going to really go back and watch tape. Yeah. But if you're, if you're <laughs> you know, if you were just to watch Olivier Vernon, you would see how good he is doing his job, even though it doesn't produce the numbers you want. Miles Garrett is getting all the numbers you could possibly want. I mean, if you sort of just sort of balanced out the the sack numbers between he and Vernon, you'd be thrilled if they had ten sacks you know, in six weeks as it is miles Garrett's on pace to set the franchise record for sacks by week 10. And is currently on pace to break the single season sack record with 24. I mean, that's, you know, he's a demigod at this point. So uh, I, th- I, th- I think ho- I'm, I'm hoping the Olivia Vernon gets to pay off a lot of the work he's doing, particularly when they come out in the second half. Um, but I don't, you know, he's never been a high sack guy. And I thought, you know, this would probably be the place where he'd get back to that double digit sack uh, spot. And he may, but it doesn't look like that's likely to happen unless he gets, you know, basically averages a sack a game the rest of the way. Uh, but in terms of what he's doing and the compliment he is to Garrett and everybody else, uh, he just does so much correctly. And even Miles Garrett will get things wrong. Like when he took a, an inside rush that allowed uh, Russell Wilson to go outside and make a throw uh, that was for a big completion yesterday. Olivier Vernon doesn't do that. Like he's just always right. And it like, it's, it's becoming like Jabril Peppers was last year. And Joe, Joe Schobert is ever always where you're sitting there and, and people are telling this guy sucks. And you're sitting there going, what he's doing everything. And, and he's great. And, you're missing it. And it's, you know, it's like, it's hard because football is just a difficult game with that. And you're just sort of like frustrated that you, you can't like make them see how great this guy is. It was the same thing with miles Garrett last year. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, the, the, where people are like, well, this guy doesn't look, I'm getting this this year. Well, miles Garrett doesn't look like a first, first overall pick. Why, why isn't he breaking the game? Like Nick Bosa and, and Aaron Donald, he has nine sacks in six games. He killed the man in the jets game. <laughs> Uh, you know, he dominated against Russell Wilson and people, 
Well, I don't know if he's if he's quite good. Like, I don't know what else is left for him to do. He is absolutely everything you could possibly want. Uh, and and you're uh, like, I don't care about the penalties. Honestly, I don't. I never think about it. But I get where some people are somewhat irritated. I just think that's sort of the price of doing business um, with with him. And I completely you know, agree on the false starts, though. The, the uh, offsides, yeah. Um, but the one this week was frustrating because he literally just lined up uh, in the neutral zone. But um, other than that, it, it is. It's the price of doing business. Like you want a guy with elite traits. Like you want him to actually like test the limits and like utilize those. And if he's not trying to time and jump the snap and like actually utilize his abilities, like what are you? What are you doing? Yeah, hundred percent. So yeah, I mean it's like. Even with the you know the the hits on the quarterback, which by the way they've stopped calling on him, um, you know whether that's conscious or not, they basically almost seem like they're tired of throwing flags on him. Uh, you know that's that's such a judgment call. In fact, one of the ones against the Jets, you know I think I think just because of the way the injury happened, they threw a flag on it, but he wasn't wrong. Like that's that was according to the textbook. It's just such a weirdly officiated rule in terms of when they call it, when they don't, I, I think it's a bad rule in terms of what it's asking the officials to do, but like offsides, like, Oh, he gets an offsides a game and he goes and kills the quarterback three times. You know, yeah. that's fine. It's that's, five and, yards. Can five somebody yards. make this argument to me? Like I, I made the comparison. It's like Joe Thomas getting a false start and they come back and give me the actual numbers for Joe Thomas getting a false start. Like I get what you're trying to say, but if he's that great, I'll, I'll get over it. Like it's not a big deal to me. Yeah, no, I think we're completely on board um, with that. Miles has been great. Everything. If he would actually break the single-season sack record this year, I'd, that would be incredible. It would vindicate anything else that happened in, in this Brown season. Um, Pete? No, let's, yeah, Miles go ahead. Garrett, short of catastrophic injury, Miles Garrett will be in the Hall of Fame, period. It's just it's going to happen. He is all, he's on pace to break so many stupid records – the only guy he's basically behind in almost everything is Reggie White right now. Like, pace of sacks, you know, obviously team history, which is embarrassing on that front. He's going to have everything in terms of sacks. But, like, it's he's got 29.5 sacks so far in his career. Uh, Smith, uh, not Bruce Smith, I think Reggie White has, like, 38 because he's Reggie White. But, like, he's two. Miles Garrett is two. And he's young you got him at 21 years old. You're going to be able to extend him at 25. You're going to have him for another contract or two. Like he yeah. is like, I said, he's going to can, it's just going to happen unless he basically, you know, unless, unless it's injuries, unless injuries kill his career. Yeah. Miles Garrett is already seventh on the Browns career sack list. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's after not, two, two and a half. Wait, season. what is the, what is the peak? Who's, the, um, who's so the Clay Matthews is top 62. Which, oh my goodness! Which is which is a good impressive number, especially for a linebacker. Yeah, yeah. Who, who well, he played yeah. forever and ever yeah, and ever and true. ever. It's one of those things where like the sack wasn't invented until 1982, so there's some weirdness with that. But yeah, I mean, look, it, 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 the 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 franchise mark is 14.5. He has nine in six weeks. <sighs> yeah, no, it's crazy. What yeah. injury gets done? Yeah. To be to be fair, Cameron Wimbley is ninth on the Browns' all-time career sack yeah, list. Yeah, it's bad. 
really bad. Jameer well, Miller is probably still on that thing. He had one season. He's 11th. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's crazy. All right, so, Pete, looking at, I mean, when we entered the season, I think many of us looked at it like, all right, I'm not sure exactly how many wins this team can get to, but we think that this is a playoff team, and like that is what we would expect from this Browns team. Really, we things are breaking somewhat well for us in how the division is playing out, in that the Steelers are dealing with injuries, and the Ravens are the team we have to beat, I think, we to worry about. The Steelers have a chance, maybe, to come in and make, a, make some noise, but I think we're really looking at the Ravens. What do you think we need to do record-wise to sneak into the playoffs? Like, what is the bare minimum threshold we need to reach? Okay, so this is an interesting question for for two reasons. I think it's still going to be 10 or 11 games, um, and I think the Browns can easily win 10 or 11 games. It's just, again. but But I think the NFL in all, as a whole, is going to have a stupid number of double-digit win teams because there are so many teams circling the drain at the same time that, like, you look at the team's schedules and you're like, this team's going to win 10 games. And you're talking about, like, Detroit. This is going to win 10 games. Talking about potentially Buffalo. This team's going to win. I mean, the, the Patriots are already at six. Like, the AFC North is probably the worst division in terms of, overall talent because obviously the Steelers are in, in a bad spot with their injuries and the Bengals are, you know, God awful. The AFC yeah. East is up in, in a similar situation, but Sam Darnold coming back sort of gives them a little bit of life. But again, I think if you look at every division, you can easily see how one or two teams can still easily get to 10 wins. And you may find yourself in a situation where nine and seven teams or even a 10 and six team might not make the playoffs just because of how weird this year is in terms of badness of teams that are all awful at the same time. The Dolphins who are actively trying to be awful. The Washington Redskins who aren't trying to be awful and just happen to be succeeding at it. The Bengals who are dead in the water. You know, you have all these teams that are just unbearably bad. And, 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 you know, the Browns play all of them in the next 10 weeks. Seems that way. And the Ravens have a harder portion of their schedule coming up. I mean, they their next two games are the Seahawks and Patriots. I mean, that's the same well, look, sequence look that we're in the beat, middle of. Look at who they've beaten. They've beaten the Dolphins. They've beaten the Cardinals. They've beaten the Bengals. And they've beaten the Steelers. The Browns have played the Rams. They've played the San Francisco 49ers. They've played the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, they who are played, all coming up on the Ravens schedule because of the division matchup. Yeah. Right. So, I like, I, I, and the other thing is the AFC as a whole, other than the New England Patriots, who are 6 and 0, every other team has no less than two losses. So, even though the Browns are 2 and 4, they're actually only two games behind anyone right now. And they've played easily the most difficult portion of their schedule. And, and I get it. Like, it, you don't have to be satisfied. And so the way they lost some of those games is awful, but they only count as one loss each. So, you know, they do what they need to do and they come out and they play well. And and I'm and not saying they can't beat the Patriots. It's just going to be a really difficult matchup because the Patriots defense is otherworldly. Four yards in attempt is four yards per play is in, like mind boggling how good that is. They've they've scored 
as many touchdowns on defense and special teams as they've given up this year at four. I think Jamie Collins has two of them, by the way. Um, yeah, he's playing it's just, great. <laughs> if Jamie Collins so, wins Defensive Player of the Year, how angry should Browns fans be? Not. Uh, I don't. I don't think I'd be angry. I, I would just say that, as as I think many of us said at the time, you know, Jamie Collins has a very specific set of skills. The Patriots know how to make him do just that, and when he does, he's great. And when the Browns were able to allow him to do some of those things, he was way, way, way better. Um, where they sort of had asked him to be sort of, you know, a bigger player than he should be, he wasn't. And obviously he has issues with motivation, which is why the Patriots got rid of him in the first place. Um, but when he's right, he's outstanding. So, yeah, but I mean, I'm not going to say the Browns can't beat the Patriots. It'd be great if they did. Uh, but after that, if they take care of business, holy crap, Aaron Rodgers just got Baker Mayfielded. Yeah, um, I know. We just I was just it. about to make the same comment. This uh, is a very Browns-style uh, yeah. ex-goal uh, line interception. So, you know, we can get into the look and all those things and the fact that Baker Mayfield has had five interceptions off of his receiver's hands, and I'm not going to excuse any of them. I, I still look at it as the Browns' major flaw right now is turnovers. I don't care about anything else but stop turning the ball over. And if they do that, they're going to win, and they're going to win a lot of games. And that's not including just progression and getting better. That's just limiting that that and doing everything else just the same. So I think they will get better. I think if they take care of that, they will be they will just go on a ridiculous run and probably put the Browns fans into a state of overrating the shit out of this team. So if they do make the playoffs and they get boat raced. Uh, which could happen, uh, that that will want them to fire Freddie Kitchens all over again. But the Browns are where I expected them to be. They have not gotten there the way I thought they would, and they have some issues that I didn't expect they would. But I think they will be fine, and I'm totally ready for this to go blow up on my face and for them to be like an 8-8 eight and eight team and fire the head coach. But I really do think they will be okay, and they just have to figure out who they are. Yep. Yeah, I, t- I tend to agree with you. And I definitely look forward to the angst of making the playoffs and all of the fans overrating this team and just being fired up as hell when when it doesn't work out and we don't win the Super Bowl. Um, Pete, I appreciate you joining us this week. Um, you haven't been on the pod in a while. I know you've got some new ventures. Tell everybody about what you're doing at Browns Maven. Tell them where they can find you um, and where they can listen to you every week. Uh, so, right. So I, I took over, uh, Browns Maven. I run it. I own it, or I should say I own the content I put out on it. It's distributed by sports illustrated. You can find it at si.com slash NFL slash Browns, Google Browns Maven, whatever. That's also a great way to do it. Um, it just, uh, it, as opposed to previous ventures, it just has more technology and allows me to do more things. Um, do a lot with video, which really just becomes audio. Uh, on some of the things, uh, there's a you know a social media platform on there that's like Facebook, but not Facebook, which is always a plus. Uh, you know, <laughs> not, not selling off all of your uh, information to anyone looking to buy it. Uh, but it's also just obviously just Browns fans on there uh, and those type of things, which is its own little thing. Uh, the platform is is very functional. Obviously, there's 
pumping out a ton of content. I've got four articles up there today from this morning. Uh, I will continue rolling out as much as I can. Uh, I try to, uh, you know, make it a haven for all of uh, the orphan podcasts that are, uh, that I think, as I've said all along. I take uh, offense to that term. Thank you very much, Pete. <laughs> well, uh, you know, until until Barbasol comes back and, and realizes the mistakes they've made, um, uh, I, I've I've long believed that you may not love every Browns podcast, uh, but I think there are so many that are good that you will find the one you like. And I'm all for sort of giving those people a, a home to sort of put them all in one place, uh, because again, I think a lot of it is just a matter of people don't haven't found the one they like, uh, whether it's you guys, whether it's uh, the lesser set of brothers, uh, as there are fewer, <laughs> whether it's, you know, some of the other stuff I, I'm on lockdown Browns a lot. Um, there's a lot of podcasts out there that aren't, you know, from big companies that I think do a great job. Like, you know, you've got Irish guys doing a podcast, which is entertaining. You've got all these things and they just, and, and, and the thing that makes it interesting isn't that they're all like super experts on football and breaking down X's and O's. It's all about their perspective and sort of, their journey through this whole thing and especially the people who have gone through one in 31 and sort of sort of seeing through that experiencing it and seeing where this team goes you get to see the highs and lows of like man this was all you know how awful was this but we got through it and we got all these great players i'm really excited about them but they lost now they're winning and all that sort of the ups and downs with it and it's a roller coaster ride and I, and i think when you get attached to some of these podcasts it's as much about uh the people in those podcasts as is anything else. So for me, like I'm always interested to hear what grandpa has to say <laughs> or his weak excuse for how he's going to try to get out of Thanksgiving or whatever. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's interesting to me because it's, you know, in addition to the, just the straight talking about football and reacting, because you, you sort of, in that sense, even if you are just a listener on the pod, I'm fortunate enough to be a guest on this illustrious podcast um, that you sort of go through the journey with them. And that's, a big part of what I think brings those people back is you find those people you connect with and it may be more than one, but you sort of go through that journey with them and you sort of, you know, see how everybody sort of grows through it, including those people running the podcast. Yep. You do a great job of it. We appreciate you all the love and uh, retweets and everything that you've shown us and you give to to everyone in the orphan podcast category. Because nobody else will advertise this thing. (laughs) (laughs) We send one tweet normally. Whenever we release a podcast, we are Pete, we are truly testing the boundaries of organic growth. <laughs> Just... the, the, the accident listener who bumps into this instead, exactly. which doesn't include Grandpa, who doesn't know how to get on it. But yes, Correct. That's good stuff. All right, man. Well, uh, we appreciate you, and uh, hope we can get you back on here much sooner um, than this last break was. Sounds good. All right. See ya. Man, it's been a while since we've had Pete on the pod. Always great. Always so definite in his, in his optimism um, for this Browns team. That's no, good. Nothing can get him down. Um, also, did he say he posted four articles from this morning? Yeah, he cranks them out after the games for sure. What a machine. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. On top of, you know, his, like, 
day job and coaching responsibilities. Yeah, I sent like four emails this morning and I felt like I was doing pretty good. We're married though, in fairness. There's there's that. <laughs> Pete's just gr- burning the midnight oil. Pete's married to the Cleveland Browns. That's that's really what it's about. Oof, that's an abusive relationship if I've ever <laughs> seen one. So so thanks for Pete for coming on the pod. Um, yeah, to to wrap this to wrap this episode up, we got to go to pick our lines like we do every week. Since Mark's not here, we're gonna go back to season one. His his tried and true method of flipping a coin for him. Um, the fact is, he's I think he's sitting at twenty five percent on the success year right rate. Now. Yeah, like so, he's really struggling. So, so this coin's is much better. Gonna chances. improve his his odds, so I don't think he can complain too much. So. We'll pick three games. Since the Browns are off, we're going to add the Monday night game. Michael, what's the Thursday night matchup? All right. Kansas City is favored by 10 points heading to Denver. So I say you do um, home team is heads. Yep. That makes sense. Let's get Mark's pick first. Home team is heads. And we have home team. Mark's got Denver. Denver. All right. Plus the points. They're getting 10 points. Kansas City's lost two games in a row. Denver seems to be coming around a little bit. I, I think they showed a little something coming back and winning that game this past weekend. Um, Tied with the Browns, two and four. You're the leader in the clubhouse on the record, so I'm going to let you pick this one first. Hmm. This is really tough to pick, and I imagine it was really hard to set the line for this game because I, I could see this going a, a number of different ways. Um, I can't imagine Kansas City's going to lose three in a row though they're just too good of a football team um and i think offensively they'll figure it out so i'm gonna take kansas city yep i got kansas city too i don't think denver's much of anything um and kansas city puts points on so quick that it's almost like irrelevant like what the line is it feels like if they're gonna win it's it's hard to pick like an under in a game like this. Like I'm pretty confident Kansas City's gonna win this game. So whether it's ten points or whether it's like five points like thirteen points, like I don't really care. Kansas City doesn't win by three. Yeah. Like it just doesn't seem to happen that way. And they can put points up so quickly that um I'm not really too worried about them covering if they're gonna win. So I got Kansas City. Next game, Sunday night, Philadelphia heading to the star to play. The Dallas Cowboys, who are underachieving teams in the same division, which like so this is game matters to both of them. Um, Dallas is getting their three home points; they're favored by three. That's it. Mark, what's your pick? (laughs) Coins just flying everywhere. Matthews will take his headphones off to be able to reach it. He's crawling. Uh, Oh, Eagles! It was a tails, Philadelphia. All right. I have to say I agree with Mark. I think the Eagles are going to win this game. The Eagles are getting their weapons back. Um, did not look great against the Vikings this year. But the Cowboys have looked not really good. Zeke Elliott has looked not that great. Dak Prescott has come back down to earth. That defense isn't quite what it was earlier in the year when they were playing really bad teams. And... Amari is hurt, and it sounds like very questionable for this weekend. That's the like thing that's really crushing me because he has been phenomenal for the Cowboys thus far this season. Yes, they have you know had a little bit of new life to start the season with the new coordinator, 
but Amari Cooper has been otherworldly. And he went out at the beginning of this last game, and I think it was a big reason why they lost. And three points, though, in Dallas. Dallas needs – they both need this game. Mm. When it's this close, I like to say that I look at the quarterbacks and the coaches. And it's pretty undeniable. And I'm going to take Carson Wentz and Doug Peterson in this case. Um I hate picking the same thing as you, but when I have a hard time, that's what I go to, and I'm going to go with with the Eagles. I hate to make that a clean sweep, but it is. Which brings us to Monday, picking the Monday night game this week. Um, the New England Patriots, who happen to be the Browns' next opponent, heading to New York to play the Jets that now have Sam Darnold back and are riding a one-game win streak. A little bit of momentum with Mr. Darnold. So... New England is favored by nine and a half points in this game. Mark, what do you think? Please keep it on the table this time. New England's a going flip. to New York. New England's going to New York. Heads. He says Mark New York jets. jets. All right. Matthew, what do you think? Nine and a half points seems like a lot. Mm-hmm. Because this New England team is not a prolific offense at this point. I think the Jets have a, a pretty good defense. They've, they've got mm-hmm. a lot of pieces. Um, C.J. Mosley, uh, he still hasn't come back from the groin injury. I don't know if he's going to be back. I kind of want to take the Jets here with the points. Hmm. And I'll gladly take the Patriots because they have been a phenomenal defense. And when you look at the coaching matchup here, I'm pretty definitively going with Bill Belichick over uh, Sir Adam Gase. And I do think that nine and a half points is a lot, especially since this is being played um, in the Meadowlands. But um, I'm still going to side comfortably with the New England Patriots. Well, we'll have to see. But I hope the Jets take a lot out of them. And that they're emotionally drained by the time they have to face the Browns. I hope that's a good game because we'll get the live reaction next week while we record the pod. Yeah, the probably. Night game's on. Yes. So if, yes. That, if that goes back and forth, bouncing back and forth on that nine-and-a-half-point spread, that could be fun. So that'll be it for this week. Thanks for listening. Um, as always, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Shoot us an email at sinofourfathers at gmail.com. Um, you can hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Sin of Our Fathers. Um, if you wish, please go to iTunes, um, rate and review us five stars. That helps um, our podcast reach new listeners. And what else do we say here? What does Mark say? I, I he never says, listen. Go Browns. Oh, and I never say anything. That's why. <laughs> go Browns. All right, guys. Thanks. Go Browns.